What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We're coming up on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and a passenger flight that was crashed landed in Pennsylvania. It's an appropriate time to consider the American attitude toward the other, the foreigner, which has escalated during the previous administration in its antipathy, antipathy uh, sorry, and when all manner of international visitors and immigrants, particularly students, were targeted, even with orders to leave the country. Now comes an important book, America Calling, a foreign student in a country of possibility, written by our guest, Dr. Rujika Bandari, and published September 14th by She Writes Press. Welcome, Dr. Bandari. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Diane. It's wonderful to be on your excellent show. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. I really um, think that this book is timely. That goes without saying, given now we have uh, refugees from Afghanistan to also uh, contend with in our psyche and in our logistics. Um, Let me give a little background that comes directly from your book, America Calling. It is a memoir. It's told through the personal lens of you and your history coming from India when you were educated abroad in the United States for secondary education, which is a goal of many from your country and from other countries as well, or at least it was. Um, but I want to I want to just give our listeners, um, you know, a background from America Calling. You write that foreign-born Americans who have made powerful contribution contributions to our nation's economy and culture are the faces of the American success story. Satya Nadella of Microsoft, Sundar Pichai of Alphabet, Google, Indra Noyi of formerly of Pepsi, and Farid Zakarian of CNN. Uh, also the architect I.M. Pei and so many more. They were all first generation immigrants who came to the US through the pathway of education. So I ask you, Dr. Bandare, How is it that our memories have shortened? How have we bought into this revisionist history that we no longer embrace people from other countries? Yeah, that's a great question, Diane. And, um, you know, it it actually, you're right, it dates back as far as, um, as also the 18th century and even earlier where we've seen these uh, waves of, um, of animosity towards outsiders or, you know, quote-unquote, the other, and the other can take many forms, whether it's international students or refugees or uh, undocumented immigrants. But the idea of the foreigner and this um, this animosity, and I think it comes in waves, and uh, we the most, the most the most recent wave we've seen um, this year, and actually beginning last year, which has also felt very personal to me, has been, of course, against Asian Americans. Um, and again, that's not new. There's a historical precedent for it. And I think that what we are seeing in the U.S. is actually not unique to the U.S. I think over the past Five to eight years, we've seen this wave of nationalism grow uh, grow across the world in many countries. We've seen it happen certainly in the UK um, and um, and Brexit. We've seen it happen in other major countries as well. And and I think that one of the reasons it happens is that there's that that once people immigrate, emigrate, and immigrate and settle into their new home. 
there's a great desire to aspire to be part of the mainstream and in the case of the U.S. embrace the American dream that it's very easy to forget where our ancestors came from and what those struggles, lo- struggles looked like. And yet, when you look at the personal history of most Americans, I mean, it's almost a cliche to say that it's a country of immigrants, but it's very true that, you know, one doesn't have to go that far back. I mean, many are first-generation immigrants, others are second- or third-generation immigrants, but it is easy as one gets comfortable, um, as one gets comfortable to also become complacent of what those origins were. It also seems that political expediency has something to do with it, because without these political agendas, how do you sow the foment? I mean, really, when you think about people like Steve Bannon, who orchestrated, you know, the Trump presidency and is now in Europe, where I am right now, and is also stirring foment here, which, as you very accurately put it, it's across the world now, uh, this far-right uh, concept of um, others being the enemy. And interestingly, you know, the irony and also one that's completely apparent from your from your very uh, insightful memoir, when people arrive in another country to become educated or to gain employment and are aspirational, they're doing absolutely everything within their power. They're trying as hard as they possibly can to be productive and successful. So ironically, it's just the kind of industrial, um, industrious approach that we're now punishing. Um, I'm, I'm really sort of interested in your take on how much of this do we bring upon ourselves? Um, there's definitely a decline in the U.S. in terms of STEM um, students in secondary universities and graduate schools. So here we are, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, enormously, um, arguably, the most important sector of jobs in our economy in terms of growth. What, What do we expect to have happen if we're not developing our own countries? Uh, population in terms of education, and then why are we not able to applaud and uh, encourage uh, and enable people who are willing to do this industrial, industrious studies and take on these enormous tasks? All great interconnected questions, and I'll I'll try and tackle them one at a time. Um, I absolutely agree with you that what is what is a huge risk and what is most apparent is how much at risk science and innovation in the U.S., in which the U.S. has really been a leader, a global leader um, for the world, how much that is at risk because, um, because the, 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 the number of foreign-born individuals who make up that sector is just huge. In fact, there's a famous quote by um, Farid Zakaria in um, in, his, in a Newsweek article, and I think I quote that in the book, where he says uh, something to the effect of that America's dirty secret is that its science and innovation and engineering enterprise is built um, built on the backs of uh, of foreigners. So I think that's the most apparent risk when we think about. Um, the growth of uh, an area like Silicon Valley and what that has meant uh, when we think about um, the Nobel Prizes that Americans win, which, by the way, when we look at what the origins of those Nobel Prize winners are each year, many of them, if not most of them, are Nobel Prize winners who, again, came to the U.S. through that pathway of uh, education. But I think what's also really at risk in which we don't talk about often enough, also because it's the piece that le- that's least understood, is how important international students are in helping Americans develop a global mindset. So if we think about young American college students, the reality is that only 
10 out of every 100 will ever have ventured abroad by the time they finish their their, um, education, which is a very small number. So what about that remaining 90%? The remaining 90% at least get to have some global learning or some global understanding when they sit in class side by side, let's say a student from Syria or India or China. So, So that's the piece that's also very much at risk the idea of uh, an, Ameri- an American education being a true global education. And so if we were to lose all of these students, the very fabric of American higher education, which has helped uh, American universities really be the world's top universities and gain global rankings, etc., would change um, dramatically. So that's um, so that's I think what's um, what's really at uh, at risk here. And to the second part of your question, which I think was around, you know, why has this not been a, a realization? I think one of the big challenges in the U.S., which is uh, really quite different from competing countries. So when we think of, um, again, that pipeline of uh, skills, talent coming into a country in the form of international students, and then that pathway into becoming valuable immigrants in society, there's a huge competition globally in which, to be quite honest, the the U.S. is is, uh, losing ground to other English-speaking countries like Australia and certainly our neighbor to the north, Canada, Um, the UK and other countries, because what's different about the US and these other countries is that that they have openly embraced, understood, accepted and embraced the idea that when it comes to attracting global talent and really building a skilled labor force, um, there needs to be that clear pathway and an understanding that people will come in to study, but then they may want to stay and they may want to be part of uh, of the workforce. So their policies are very clearly aligned. In the U.S., however, there's sort of whether it comes from a policy perspective, comes to a policy and national perspective, there's what's happening in education and trying to attract international students to come study in the U.S. And then there's everything that happens with immigration, which is sort of its own silo, and the two don't really speak to each other. So I think that's a big gap. I will say that I think we are now, there's some hope. I think we're moving in the right direction with the new newish administration um, where just very recently, um, in fact, last month, uh, the administration announced, um, uh, uh, sort of announced a recommitment to the idea of an international education strategy, acknowledging that it's really important to begin to align some of these uh, these pathways. You know, you also mentioned Colin Powell, um, the late, uh, the you know, a previous Secretary of Defense. Um, and a person who you, you wouldn't think would really talk warmly about this issue, who cited the friendship that develops um, as world leaders are educated in the U.S. and consequently and conversely, students from the U.S. are educated abroad. There is an understanding, a level of relating that is irreplaceable. Um, and then, of course, in terms of leadership, Barack Obama's father was uh, an international student from, I think, Kenya. Kamala Harris's parents were both international students, her mother from Jamaica and her father uh, also from Africa. So, you know, we're at a point where it's more than ironic. It's almost like schizophrenic. Or we're going to really shoot ourselves in the foot if we don't get a handle on this. Um, I'm so glad you brought up the Fareed Zakaria uh, quote. He ends it by saying, Americans don't do science anymore. So let's unpack this for a moment, Dr. Bandari. And I will give listeners your bio. You, you have a PhD in psychology um, rather than in STEM uh, studies, and I don't even want to diminish that in any way. But let's unpack the reason why Americans appear to resist learning STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. 
Do you feel that it's because of its nerdiness, its relative lack of glamour due to upside income potential, which is an untruth, but, you know, is we, we get into, we get up in arms by the binary thinking that somebody um, who studies STEM from outside the country has robbed an American of his position. So it's either or. It's, you know, but we have no ability to acknowledge the contributions of outsiders without this paranoia. We have to look at ourselves. I think often when there is the target of an outsider or an other, it's because we can't figure ourselves out. We can't fix our own problem. Do you feel that STEM is because that we're not inherently, you know, the R&D is not there because of this primary kind of uh, ascendant American identity that we have to make tons of bucks? And this is just frankly not glamorous. Yeah, and I, yes, and I think this, it is something very puzzling and very troubling. And I'll just sort of share from my personal perspective that as a parent of an 11-year-old and that to a young girl, and so, so I think there's also that intersectionality of gender here, how early all of this begins on sort of rejecting uh, the STEM field and certain fields just not being seen as cool or also that if you are genuinely good at, let's say, maths or science or whatever, or this almost, pre- almost this pressure of not embracing that and being proud of it as you would have, say, oh, well, I just you know, won a debate or I, 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 I won some other art competition or something. So it begins very early. Um, there's, of course, a huge amount researched and written about this, but, but I think that the, this early mindset is particularly damaging for girls. And, and I think that there's a lot being done around that now, and we're beginning to move the needle somewhat, but I, there is this, this, um, real contradiction almost of, of there not being enough of a focus on the STEM fields at the, at the high school and secondary level. And then yet when we look at America's post-secondary system, its colleges and universities, when it comes to educating students in the sciences and engineering and all of the related fields, they are on inarguably the world's top institutions, which is why they draw the world's talent. No, no institutions anywhere in the world have the sorts of research investments, the sorts of labs and technology that, that American campuses have. So there is this, this disjointedness, and you're absolutely right that the, a large part of that gap is being uh, made up by students from other countries, and particularly, I would say, from Asia, where and and having sort of, and, and originating from one of those countries myself, in, in this case, India, I would say that those countries lie on the opposite side of the spectrum, where there is an undue focus on the sciences. But I think that also has to do with with their history. So what happened in India was that once it gained independence from the British in the late forties there was this big push towards really building up the country, building up its infrastructure, focusing on the sciences. And that huge bias continues even today. So, so right. in India, it's in you know, countries like China and other Asian countries, it's, it's in fact the opposite. But the, mm-hmm. the, the, the third piece I wanted to sort of tackle is that you're absolutely right that there's this perception that um, well, all these foreigners are coming in and taking away seats. But in fact, when we when we look at the data, and in fact, there was just a newly released study um, last uh, month, I believe, from the uh, from from a center that um, a, uh, the National Foundation for uh, I'm going to I'm going to mix up the words. So I'll just say there was a new research study that in fact showed that specifically in the STEM fields, the presence of international students is actually helping create more opportunities for domestic students and raising enrollment for everybody. To your point that this is not a black and white issue, it's not a zero-sum game, 
And I think that from the perspective of um, of uh, the education sector, as well as the government in the U.S., there's a, there, there's a push to try and meet both of those needs. So a lesser known fact, for example, is yes. that the hefty fee that employers pay for the H-1B visa when they decide to bring someone in uh, from another country on a work visa a large proportion of that is actually going into support programs to increase STEM teaching um, in high schools um, and in other in the US. with the whole idea yes. being, yeah, exactly, it's to in, build that pipeline, to build the domestic pipeline as well. It's such, a, it's such an important point that you're making, and there are many in your book, America Calling, a Foreign Student in a Country of Possibility. We are going to pause for a commercial break, but when we come back, we'll be back with Dr. Rajika Bandare, who is the author of this important and timely book. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Dr. Rajika Bandari, and she, we are very lucky to have you with us today, Dr. Bandari. I'll give you just a summary. It's actually some sort of capitalizes what we've been saying, but from, from your book, international or about your book, America Calling, international students and immigrants have been the secret ingredient in America's recipe for global success. America Calling shares one immigrant story, that's yours, a tale that reflects millions more and shows why preventing the world's best and brightest from seeking the American dream will put this country's future in jeopardy. I'd really like you to, since you are a statistician, Dr. Bandari and Rajika, Rajika, I, I don't want to mispronounce your name. That is the problem. There were many people in the in the book who did. Rajika, I, I, I admire you as a statistician. Um, I'd like you to, if you would, please attach some numbers to the international student, let's say, business Um you know, it does hurt somehow to say recruitment and things like that. But I one figure that popped out to me was 13.7 billion, I think it's going to be um, British pounds in the UK, is a, a loss of revenue from the pandemic in terms of s- students coming to universities. How, how about in America? How, you know, it, it seems like it would be a sorry, not a good barometer in terms of a beneficial barometer, but it gives a, it gives some perspective on the, mag, the, magna, the um, magnitude of the contribution of international students. What's it like in America now in terms of loss of revenue due to students not being able to come? Yeah, so... Um This is one reason why I wanted to write this book, because the numbers or the metrics of um, 
the international education sector or industry, if you will, are, of course, very well known to those of us who work within it, but it is still a very niche area. And most Americans or the average American does not realize, one, how how large the presence of international students is in the U.S. and across uh, thousands of campuses in the U.S. or even what their huge impact is. So um, if I may, I'd like to actually start with that piece, that just in terms of, as you said, the the huge magnitude of numbers that we're talking about. So um, until very recently, um, right before the pandemic, the U.S. was hosting well over 1 million international students from over 200 countries at uh, uh, thousands of U.S. campuses all across the U.S. So we're not talking just big cities, but also small towns, small communities across the U.S. So they are a large um, and visible presence. Yet their contributions and impact has largely been invisible or not understood. So if we look in really sort of hard financial terms or economic terms on why the U.S. needs international students, most Americans would be stunned to learn that international students bring in about $45 billion to the U.S. economy each year. Now, this number slipped a little bit in the past uh, year, again, because of a combination of damaging immigration policies as well as uh, the pandemic. But even so, it's anywhere between 38 and $45 billion, which actually makes it the sixth largest service export in the U.S., which means that America is more successful at selling its higher education degrees to the rest of the world than it is many of its other other products. So the impact um, is, uh, is just huge. And, you know, I could go on because there's so many numbers to share. In terms of uh, what's happening now, um, and I I don't have that number right in front of me, but um, last year there was a very uh, damaging impact on most U.S. institutions because, uh, and in case your listeners are are sort of trying to figure out that formula of why, why would that impact be damaging, the reason is that many U.S. universities are relying on international students to support their bottom line Mm -hmm. Um, because most international students coming in, over uh, over 60% of them on average, are covering themselves and their own tuition and fees when they're in the U.S. And they pay for for an American college or university, they pay the same as out-of-state or even higher than many, pay more than many American students. So they're a huge pool of revenue for mm-hmm. American colleges and universities who, who frankly depend on them. So last year with the pandemic, um, when institutions could not stay open and have uh, students be there in person, it was a huge financial loss to most, uh, most institutions. Um, and uh, it's been a very negative impact. The good news is that um, this month, and I'm actually excited that the book comes out again at a timely time for many reasons. But yeah. this month, there's good news. Um, students are beginning to come back to the U.S. Um, we're hearing that U.S. embassies have uh, stepped up their visa processing in many key countries. So there will hopefully be uh, some remedying of that huge loss. But it's, it's been a huge loss nonetheless. Well, you pointed to the current administration allowing on the immigration side some easing of the incredibly painful and lengthy processes that have prohibited people from coming here and staying, um, uh, getting a green card. You note your own personal ambivalence about not returning to India versus staying in America, making a huge contribution here. I will give our listeners a biography. Uh, Dr. Bandare, Dr. Rajika Bandare, is the author of six academic and nonfiction books and several publications that touch on the themes of movement, migration, and crossing borders. She has written for The Guardian, 
Times Higher Ed, The Huffington Post, The Chronicle of Higher Education, University World News, and Diplomatic Courier. You've been featured on NPR, PRI International, and Voice of America. You've been quoted by the BBC, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Times of India, and Time among others. And I think one of the aspects that you you brilliantly capture in the book is the transformative nature of education. It's a non-quantifiable thing now that we've just touched on the huge industry sector that it represents. There's something in terms of witnessing experiencing another culture that is transformative. And if students around the world are not exchanging, um, it's not just people coming to the United States, but, you know, not sh- they're not shedding their former selves. They're becoming homogeneous. That would be the alternative, right? That they would simply stay in their own culture, not experience others, um, not have a change of scene or influences that stimulate them to embrace other subjects, to have new perspectives. I mean, this is also a risk, is it not, in terms of international relations and just getting along in the world? It is a huge risk, and actually I did not add that to the list of risks we talked about much earlier in our conversation It's a huge risk because it's really about citizen diplomacy. And yes, at the individual level, being um, globally engaged and globally informed and um, really developing that global mindset that, you know, whether it's UNESCO or OECD or or our our schools and education systems talk about and uh, something that is so important for students and individuals to develop these days. And what better way to do it than to cross borders to not just learn academically, but to really have all of your assumptions challenged. Uh, And for me, what I found was it was not only about learning about a different part of the world, a new country, a new culture, um, in defining a lot of my values, but it actually taught me a lot about where I came from. It gave me, so, so, so I truly believe that leaving home teaches you not about the desti- not just about the destination to which you're going, but it actually helps you understand your own home or your own, own homeland in a very uh, unvarnished and objective way that you would not have otherwise. And to understand certain nuances that you could not have known without actually leaving your home. So for me, that's, you know, the, the, that education of studying in another country is, is, is both sides of the coin about learning about, the, you know, where you've gone, but also where you've come from. And it is absolutely essential. And you're right that it is something at risk. And here I'll, I'll sort of talk about, I'd love to mention sort of the other piece that I bring up in my book, which is the, how important it is for American students to, to continue to go overseas and in fact go overseas in larger numbers. And, and this mm-hmm. is in fact within my sector, within U.S. higher education being, if you will, the great challenge over the past um, couple of decades that, well, I mean, things have shifted in the past couple of years, but frankly, the U.S. has not had an issue until recently in attracting people from around the world. It's, it's you know, been a beacon. People flock to U.S. universities. Of course, that shifted recently, as I, as I detail in my book. But on the study, the U.S. study abroad side, which is getting more young Americans to go overseas, that's been more of an enduring challenge. Um, I think that there, there is this, attitude in the U.S., um, or again, the sort of complacency that, well, if we've got the best universities and we have over 4,000 of them and we're an Anglophone country, why would we really want to go to another country to, to study? We don't really need to, the way, let's say, students from some other countries or developing countries may, may need to come to the U.S. So, so mm-hmm. the reality is that 
when you compare the U.S. even to its competitors and other countries in Europe, very few students are going abroad to study. And mm-hmm. that really, um, really needs to change. And it's something to be concerned about because, again, developing that global mindset is a, is a two-way process. It's uh, not just about bringing the world into your own classrooms, which, of course, is very critical, but it's also about venturing, um, venturing abroad uh, yourself. Um, what, yes. what I do want to say, though, uh, just in sort of closing this thought is, that I don't want to come off as sounding that these sorts of opportunities are there for the picking because one of the big concerns, and uh, I lay out some of this in my book, uh, and I, I, I actually worry it's been exacerbated due to COVID, is that it is very expensive to study abroad, whether it is international students coming here or uh, Americans going abroad. So we yes. must acknowledge that that is a true barrier. That is a true barrier for students from, from more disadvantaged backgrounds. That, that's, you know, it's an interesting point in terms of also the discrepancy in wealth that's spreading now. You know, you, you mentioned a couple of things, um, and I think that's really a key point. And I will just jokingly, you know, since I'm now sitting in Zurich, Switzerland, I mean cheese and learning about, you know, our homeland. I, I really didn't realize how loud Americans are perceived and even how even how great they're perceived um, you know there's there's lots of different facets and I think for those who might be tempted to read America calling I would say go for it it's also a love story uh, Rodrigo you came to the United States with Vikram your then uh, partner lover boyfriend so it's a really touching story also about you acquiescing, fulfilling expectations that you grew up with, and maybe eventually cultivating your own voice with this book, America Calling. It's really, there's an arc that's a perceptible arc. We have to stop for a commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about this. And I'd also like to mention that there is an organization in America called Girls Inc. Um, that I have supported, and it it does um, build STEM labs in underserved areas such as mine in St. Petersburg, Florida. So where there's a will, there's a way. Let's all kind of try to you know, really accept the reality that a global mindset is only going to enhance our ability to not only get along in the world, but to succeed in the world that's already global, whether we want it to be or not. So let's not be in denial. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In with Dr. Bandari. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with the author of America Calling, a foreign student in a country of possibility, Rajika Bandari. And Rajika, you came to this country 
as a, as a young student, because you were in love with a young man, the relationship lasted 10 years, which is long. And I think you were during that time both um, engaged in really working very hard to succeed in your academic careers, to map out some kind of future. It wasn't meant to be, but it also gave you, I think, the beginnings of permission to start to think and speak for yourself. Your book comes out in two weeks. How do you feel it will um enable people to not only have a greater understanding of students, international students in this country, but also of ourselves and how we're perceived and how to operate in different systems that are unlike our own and the need to be either diplomatic or, you know, standing up for ourselves as the situation calls for. One of the, and you've sort of picked up on one of the threads running through the book where, where it's not just about me as an international student, but it's also about me, very much about me as a woman and finding my voice and um, really the, and it's, you know, it's become a bit of a buzzword these days, uh, but really it's also a large part of the book is also about the intersectionality of, of being foreign and being, fra- being the other, of being female and of belonging to a, minority, a, a visible, visibly minority group in the U.S. And I hope that one of the takeaways from the book as people read this is that that even for those who are not necessarily interested in the international student pathway or an immigrant story, there is a more universal story about young women finding their place and uh, and their voice and the transformative impact, again, that leaving home um, can have, particularly on, uh, on young women. And I think that for me, uh, one of the things that happened over the years, and uh, I, I document a little bit of this in the book, is that leaving home and, and especially coming from a more patriarchal society like India and then coming to the West, really sort of opened my eyes to a lot of things back home or in my in my Indian community and culture, which um, I slowly began to question and then eventually reject. Um, but the converse also happened, that it, it also has given me a perspective on, um, you know, it's not just about kind of... Uh, you know, patriarchal cultures and how they they have regressive attitudes towards women. But even in the U.S., we're dealing with a lot of the same uh, same issues and, you know, that uh, about gender and women and that have certainly come to the fore in just the past few years around uh, around uh, the, you know, especially with the Me Too, uh, the hashtag Me Too movement. So it's uh, been this process of uh, again, um, better understanding where you've come from, but also developing a more nuanced understanding of the society that one now lives in, and being able to um, to assess uh, to assess uh, both of those cultures and um, and societies. And I mm-hmm. feel that the experience certainly helped me, um, as I've said, find my voice and figure myself out and. Uh, by um, many measures, uh, or, or at least, I, I, and so I will share something very personal here, that by many, um, you know, measures, uh, or by a sort of the yardstick of a more traditional culture, and certainly my Indian one, I have actually broken um, many barriers, one could say. Uh, one being that I actually never got married. I am mm-hmm. a single mother by choice. Um, Mm -hmm. and which is very rare, if not unheard of in my community. 
Mm-hmm. More recently, uh, and actually around around the book, um, uh, it's um, I've I've also begun to challenge myself and take more risks professionally. Where I've grown up and sort of had this. In growing up, I've had a very um, straight-jacketed approach to thinking in a very linear way about having a reliable career and needing the solid job. And I talk a little bit about this mindset in the book as well. But more recently, in fact, in just the past year or so, and uh, it's, uh, it's been sharpened by COVID, it's really been a process of uh, also moving away from some of those more rigid ways of thinking. And after, I will share that after almost 20 plus years of holding senior leadership roles in the nonprofit sector and in other sectors, I am now actually an entrepreneur running my own consultancy and, uh, and company. So it's, uh, to wow. me, and the reason I mentioned that is that it's all, it's all part of this idea of, um, how you find your, again, I call it finding your place and your voice. And that, that transformation and transition has certainly happened for me um, over the past couple of decades. Well, congratulations on that. I mean, you have a career in education that spans 25 years. You've held senior leadership roles in the private, academic, and nonprofit sectors. Um, you've widely regarded as a thought leader in international education and served recently as president and CEO um, of the world's oldest and largest international education nonprofit, IIE research impact through leadership activities. Um, there's, there's just so much. You've served on the U.S. National Commission for UNESCO, um, and you are well-deserving of taking your wings and flying. Um, and I also congratulate you, not least for being uh, a single mom when the traditions of your culture said otherwise. Um, fortunately, I think most of us know single moms now. Um, I know several in, in my family as well. Um, but I know that those are hard-won victories. And I think that your struggles have become part of a larger whole with this book. Um, and it will become even more so. And when you talk about home, I wonder about the sense of belonging that you feel from sharing your inspirations, your aspirations, and your experience. Um, Does it give you a sense of belonging, of being part of something larger than yourself, of becoming part of a whole? Um, do you mean with the book or, or in general? Uh, I think, well, with with the book particularly, because yeah. I think that, you know, when you're talking about home, it's a tricky concept. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things you mm-hmm. mentioned in the book was, you know, how much is in flux, and that's why it's also difficult to write about it. It's no, no, you know, as soon as it's out of the printer, it's already changed. Its circumstances have changed. And, you know, I, I feel you shedding your skins and leaving parts of you behind, changing your value system. I wondered if by becoming an international leader in this field, that you have connected with people who support you, um, you know, root for you, are really um, regard you as a role model, and whether then, you know, and naturally that will increase with this book, whether that gives you a sense of belonging that maybe it doesn't substitute for a home, but a sense of belonging that anchors you nonetheless. Yeah, I now see what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that for me, um, as I began to, so actually, let me back up. When I was a student, and I think this is true for most international students, they are, you know, with their heads down, going through their studies, trying to tackle the immigration system, working their way through it, trying to survive financially, etc., that is true of me, of my friends. Nobody is really objectively thinking of themselves as any kind of subpopulation in the U.S. Um, and certainly not as sort of future potential immigrants, etc. But I think once one is past that, and for me, what, what also happened was that professionally, quite ironically and interestingly, my life came full circle where not only had I walked that personal path of 
uh, coming to the U.S. as a student and becoming an immigrant. But then about 15 or 16 years ago, I, I landed in a job where I was suddenly the outsider looking in where I was studying international students in the U.S. And so that gave me a whole different perspective. But what it also led to was really beginning to ask these questions, look carefully around me, realize how many of today's um, very successful immigrants had followed that same path. And then beginning to really see myself um, as part of a much larger whole and um, part of sort of what I call immigrant America. And what I will say is that part of writing this book, particularly in the last year or so, has been such a period of learning, of connecting the dots, of getting, uh, I've always been a fan of immigrant writers, maybe because <laughs> their work resonates with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been a couple of years of really beginning to understand organizations that are doing great work in this space, better understanding the refugee phenomenon that's playing out in the U.S. and even more so now because of Afghanistan. So really immersing myself in uh, those aspects of, again, immigrant America. So certainly... I feel very much part of that. I feel very much uh, part of sort of the the Asian-American identity in the U.S. um, and really embrace, uh, embrace, uh, you know, all of those uh, those different uh, roles and and identities. Absolutely. And we need very much your intelligence, your insight and your leadership in understanding and becoming enlightened. Uh, We have just a minute to go, and so I I really just want to remind everyone of your first words, uh, Dr. Bhandari, Rajika, you've been wonderful with us today in sharing your insights, that it comes in waves. America's uh, glamorous uh, university system became the envy of the world because of colonialism. Some of the xenophobia happened because of a certain administration and a certain kind of time. But we could rise to the occasion again. Again, and I just want to thank you for being with us uh, and uh, remind everyone that the book America Calling is coming out in just a couple of weeks. You're available on social media, Rajik Bandari, uh, Facebook, author Rajik Bandari, Twitter, Rajik Bandari, and Instagram. You have a website as well. Dr. Bandari, thank you. Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you. And it's been thank a pleasure. You. It's been our pleasure as well. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener, and to Aaron Keller, to our executive producer, Robert Cialino, and most of all, to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe and don't think of others as others. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.